Hello folks, welcome to Wisdom Wednesday, our Faith and Spirituality Center podcast uh, where we interview different guests about their faith journeys and whatever spiritual storytelling they have to offer. Uh, It is a brisk, cold November day outside of the Faith and Spirituality Center and I'm here with uh, Father Cristino who is our guest today. Uh, Father Cristino Bouvet is a Roman Catholic priest who serves at the Diocese of Calgary. He entered seminary training in London, Ontario in 2004, and after eight years of studies and formation, was ordained a priest here in Calgary in 2012. He has since served a number of communities in the city before taking on a new role in 2017, working with young adults, uh, and that role developed in 2019 to a full-time chaplaincy. He is now the Roman Catholic chaplain to U of C, MRU, and SAIT, and he also works alongside the campus ministry at St. Mary's University. This role is also known as the Vicar for Vocations and Young Adults. Father Cristino loves board games and the outdoors, and spends a lot of time scrambling, rock climbing, and generally hiking towards mountain peaks. And the worst piece of wisdom he's ever received is, you should try anything once. Some things... You just shouldn't try. Welcome, Father Castino. <laughs> Thank you, Eden. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I am so happy to uh, have you here with us. Um, you are a very busy man, as evidenced by your bio, so I really appreciate the uh, time that you've uh, offered kind of towards us. Um, yeah, uh, so the the first kind of question or the jumping off point that we decided on is a story that you actually get asked to tell a lot, and that is uh, the story of kind of how you became a Catholic priest. Uh, so you're welcome to just jump right in. Right on. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think that is probably the most frequent thing I am asked. What in the world possesses someone to become a Catholic priest? And I have to say that on the one hand, it began at a young age. Uh, even as a little boy, I would go to church with my family on Sundays, and I'd see the priest doing his stuff up there in the altar, and and I would very innocently say, well, I want to do that too. <laughs> and I don't think I understood what that entailed, what would that, that actually mean for me to be becoming a Catholic priest. Uh, so my parents just sort of played along with it, and it was a bit of a game. I used to go into the bathroom early in the morning on Saturdays, and take an empty toilet paper roll, and cut a strip of it out, and try and attach it to my shirt and look like I had on a collar and go into my parents' room and pretend to celebrate Mass. And they were very cooperative. But as I say, it was just a game for me. I didn't understand what it would actually entail. But as I was getting a little older and I kept talking about it more, people started to bring me down to earth and say things like, you know, you can't do certain things if you become a priest. You don't get to just make all your own decisions. You can't just live anywhere you want. You don't have a wife or children and raise your own family. Are you, are you sure you want these things? And I didn't really know. I, I, I would say, well, yeah, that's fine. I didn't give it a lot of thought. But I, I have a very interesting ethnic background in that on my mother's side, I am Italian. Her parents immigrated here uh, in the late 50s, early 60s from Italy. And on my dad's side, I am indigenous uh, and Métis. And so I had these kind of two different worlds. And I grew up very close to the house where my nonna and nonno, my Italian grandparents, lived. And so they were a huge influence on my Catholicism, you could say. Uh, 
So one day when I was about nine years old, I was at Nono's house and my grandfather said, Christy, come and sit with Nono on the couch. And I went and sat with my Nono. He says, you know what? Our family is so big, but not the one a priest, not the one a nun. That's no good. Why don't you be a priest? I said, me become a priest? Yeah, sure, you make such a nice a priest. Well, that was the first time someone had told me I should be a priest, and of all people, my nono, who was like my hero, right? So that was it. I said, that day on, I want to be a priest. Nine years old. And I could now say, I know, I know, you can't become rich, you can't have a wife and kids, I know. And that lasted for a few more years. I'd say until about junior high school. And I got mercilessly teased in elementary school for saying I wanted to be a priest. And I could see that it doesn't help make any friends. So in junior high, I decided maybe I better cool that a little bit. <laughs> I'm not going to lead with that anymore because now I had a chance to make new friends. All different Catholic elementary schools in Medicine Hat, where I grew up, went to one junior high school. So I thought, I can meet some new people now. And lo and behold, on, on my first day of grade seven, I sat in a corner with three different people around me, each of which were these three pretty girls. And I said, well, I want to be friends with them. But I'm not going to tell them I want to be a priest. And a little, a little bit later, little by little, we got to become much better friends. And they thought, oh, he's so funny. And I loved it and said, well, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm never going to be a priest. <laughs> I decided right then there, I'm going to marry one of these girls. And that's it. So that carried on. And I just stopped thinking about the priesthood. I didn't stop my faith. I, I continued to go to Mass and to pray and... I, I don't think I ever felt far from God from that perspective, but I just stopped thinking about being a priest. Until one day in grade nine, I was almost finished junior high, I was going to be moving on to high school. I was very close to this one girl in particular at that time. So the priesthood was far from my mind. But as I was walking through the hallway, my math teacher stopped me. Of all people, my math teacher, this big, tall guy, six and a half feet tall with big, broad shoulders, and all white hair, except for this little yellow curl, because he smoked a pipe. And he'd walk up and down the schoolyard smoking his pipe, just staring at us. So we were all terrified of him. Mr. Cullen was his name. And Mr. Cullen just stopped me, and he looked down at me, and I looked up at him. And he said, Cristino, I think you should consider the priesthood. <laughs> I, I was completely shocked. I, I didn't know where this was coming from. But he had seen something in me, I guess. And now I couldn't stop thinking about it. Every time I was at church, whenever I was with my friends, it was just always on my mind, and I was kind of freaking out about it. Until a whole year later, we were on a retreat with our youth group, and a buddy of mine had a broken leg, and so he couldn't take part in some of the activities. So I actually went to hang out with him up in the cabin so he didn't have to be alone. And We were just sitting there, and I finally just felt like I couldn't take this anymore, and I said, hey man, can I tell you something? But I haven't told anybody this, and... I'm really nervous and it's kind of awkward. He said, dude, what's wrong? I said, I think God might want me to become a priest. And his eyes got all big and he said, you too? Hmm. And here, both of us had been thinking about this, but had never wanted to tell anybody. And so it was such a relief to have someone I could talk about this with. So for another whole year, that's practically all we did was talk about how do you become a priest? What would it look like to be a priest? Why would we want to be priests? And in 2002, something very important happened here in Canada for Catholics in Canada. Uh, the Pope, at that time, Pope John Paul II was his name, 
Uh, he was coming to Toronto and there was going to be a major international event called World Youth Day, which is a global gathering of young people with the Pope. And we were hosting it in Toronto. And so all across the country, there were little pre-events leading up to that. And here in Calgary, we were going to be celebrating what was called an ordination. And this is a ritual where a man becomes a priest. But on this occasion, there were four at once who were going to become priests. And because there were so many, and it was such a special occasion with the Pope coming to, that we actually held it in McMahon Stadium. Wow. So there were 5,000 people gathered there that day. And it was the first time I had witnessed something like that. And there's a part, a part of the ritual where before the bishop, who is the one who makes you a priest, comes and lays his hands on the top of your head, you actually lay prostrate on the ground, on your, on your flat on your stomach, on your face, uh, as everyone prays uh, for you to be prepared to undertake this responsibility. And when I watched those men lay down, on the, on the field, on the 50-yard on the line of, of McMahon Stadium, I, I was filled with this question. Is that what you're asking me to do, God? To just lay down my life like that? And I was, I was really stressed about it. And I think my buddy could see that. And he leaned over and he said, Hey, man, if God wants us to be priests, let's just ask for a sign. I said, yes, it's a perfect idea because I had asked God for lots of signs before and I never got one. <laughs> so I thought I'll ask God for a sign and then I won't get one. And then it won't be my fault that I don't become a priest. So I thought I had it all figured out. So quietly, silently in my heart, I didn't say anything out loud. I just said, God, if you want me to be a priest, give me a sign. No sooner had I thought that or prayed that in my heart, I was tapped on the shoulder. And I turned around and there was this little old woman standing there. I'd never seen her before. I had no idea who she was. And she just leaned forward and said, you are going to become a priest. I just froze and my buddy was like, whoa, that's your sign, man. She said that to you. <laughs> I'm speechless. And then she's asked me, are you going to become a priest? I, I, I didn't know what to say. So she asked my name and I managed to stammer out, Chris. She said, Chris, I am going to pray for you every day until your ordination. And I just, I didn't know what to say, but I, I didn't want to accept that that was a sign. I said, well, maybe that was just a coincidence. How am I supposed to know if that was a sign? So fast forward one week and now the Pope has just celebrated Mass in Downsview Park in Toronto. And he's giving his sermon. And there's a moment when the Pope himself, he said, perhaps some of you think you might be called to the priesthood. To you I say, do not be afraid to follow Christ on the royal road of the cross. For whatever reason, it was that moment that I just was overcome by peace. I had never felt peace any time I thought about this. I only felt sadness or anxiety. But at that moment, I had peace. So I finally just sort of caved in and I said, okay, God, if you want me to be a priest, as soon as I'm done high school, I will go directly to the seminary for one year, just one year. I'll give it a try and then we'll both see that this isn't for me and then I'll move on with my life. But that's not what happened. I, I did my eight years. I never took a break. I never stopped. It just kept seeming more and more right as I went along. And so at the young age of, of 26, that's about as young as you can be now to have completed your training. I was ordained a priest. 
And here I am now, nine and a half years later, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Wow. So, yeah, that's my story. Yeah, that is a incredible story. Um, it it seems almost uh, biblical in mm. the sense of, of receiving those signs mm-hmm. and and that kind of wrestling or, or struggling with. I think there's a lot of uh, resonances within the faith tradition mm-hmm. uh, in that story. And I think the first question that comes to my mind, uh, because you have uh, such a brilliant description of that ordination that you witnessed in McMahon Stadium, uh, what was your ordination like? Did you go to McMahon Stadium? Like, what was <laughs> what was that moment? Good question. Ironically, when I was ordained, I also was ordained with three other people. So there were four of us, but they didn't want us in McMahon Stadium, I guess. I don't know where well, there's a church that's sort of considered like the central church for Catholic churches in southern Alberta. Mm-hmm. And that's downtown, uh, really close to, actually very close to the Saddle Dome uh, on 17th there, just off of 17th Ave, called St. Mary's Cathedral. Uh, anyone that went to St. Mary's High School will know the church right next door. So that's where actually it was held. Uh, but about they, we estimated about 2,000 people <laughs> tried to cram into wow. that church that night. Uh, even just I have a very huge family, so between just the four of us, our families being there, plus all of the different parishes where we had been uh, serving in the past and the people who knew us, our friends. So uh, it, was a, it was a very overwhelming experience, but I, I really broke down. Like when I lay down on the floor, I, I thought back to that moment, those many years earlier, 10 years earlier, and I said, I can't believe that this is me now. Like, wow, what, what happened? Uh, but when you come up off the floor, it's almost like you're rising or something. You you feel like a new person. Uh, and yeah, it's very powerful. It had a deep impact on me. And so so what is that what is that new person like? What like can you identify what that shift was or mm-hmm. from, you know, high school Christino to now Father Christino? Like right. what uh what did you learn or what changed inside of you that kind of allowed you to mm-hmm. undergo that transformation? It's now very clear to me why you spent eight years in the seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a lot. I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I have a master's degree in theology. That's all nice. But really, it's about forming yourself to be capable of accepting both the, the honor but the burden of now being expected to represent Christ uh, to the world. It's it's difficult to walk around wearing this little white square around my neck because you are immediately identified. And that means that person, whether they're a believer or not, expects something different from you. And it's hard to make sure you're always living up to that Uh, and to make sure that whoever would encounter you would encounter someone who loves them, who respects them, who wants to put them ahead of himself. Uh, And so to be prepared to accept that and to live that out for the rest of my life, it took time. But I can say that I think the moment that it that it really clicked was once the ceremony is all done, 
uh, you you kind of walk out and now you're wearing your robes as a priestly a priestly vestment and then we kind of circle back and come through the back door of the church and come back in to, to greet our families so that the first people we see as new priests are our families. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking towards my family, both my grandmothers and my parents and my younger sister were sitting in the front pew. Uh, they, they just burst into tears. And my mother just couldn't speak. She just held me and gave me this big hug. But then my father, my dad, took his son in his in his hands and he just looked at me and he said father and i could not believe my father was calling me father right and it it just not no he doesn't call me father all the time (laughs) but on that moment he was sort of just saying like wow like this is who you are now this is your identity and that that hit me like a ton of bricks so can I ask, like, what is, where does the um, honorific or title father come from? Because mm-hmm. it is, it's quite uh, familial. Right, exactly. In the very early days of Christianity, uh, what was early on understood was that the apostles, those, those men who were immediately around Jesus Christ before he we say, uh, resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, they went out and already then began to try and represent him in the midst of the people to whom they were preaching. And as soon as little communities began to gather around those apostles, from the earliest writings that we have available, we saw that they already began to look upon them as if they were the father of of their family of faith. Uh, And it was seen as you know, God the Father has appointed you to be our Father in our midst. Uh, this new family of faith, not bound by blood, but bound by baptism. That through the shared baptism that we have, we are all one family. Uh, and our family has God as its Father, and you stand in His place as that, that living, breathing, tangible human being who. Uh, is there for us and so from that point on they very early on began to talk about this person you know father john father james father peter and as more and more people gathered around and more and more help was needed those apostles as we hear about in the in the book of the new testament called the acts of the apostles began to appoint other people to work alongside them and gave them a share in their authority and in their identity. And so from there, it just became the way that you were identified. Uh, so it's in a way, a, a way of showing respect. I actually, just before coming up here, my uncle uh, was on campus. And so I ran into him and we had a, a quick visit. Since the day I was ordained, he has insisted that he will call me father. Wow. He's my uncle. He's known me my whole life. Yeah. But he says, no, that's who you are now. I, I want to call you father. And I say, well, it's up to you. I would not be offended if you didn't. But it, it helps me to know that that's what people are looking for. They're expecting that. Uh, and so I hope that the way that I treat them and care for them and show my concern for them would be that familial feeling as you described it earlier. Right. Yeah, this is the, the second time that you've brought up uh, expectation. As in, there's a lot of expectations around um, 
being a priest and a father um, in, in that sense of the word. And I was really struck earlier by your definition of they expect to encounter someone who loves them, who respects them, who will put them before themselves. Uh, and I, yeah, I just, I wondered if you could expand more or talk about where does that definition uh, come from for you or what does that mean for you? How do you live that out in your daily life? Right. Well, as priests, we strive to model uh, all of our life, everything we do on the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the Gospels, in the, in the first four books of the New Testament of the, the Christian scripture, you hear these uh, authorities of the, of the Hebrew scriptures questioning Jesus, saying to him, you say you know about the law, you know uh, our law. What would you say is the most important law in our law? And he said, well, it's twofold, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. And I said, oh, you have spoken rightly. And so right away we get this glimpse that to follow Christ means to love God entirely and then to love others as you love yourself, which presupposes two things. First, that we actually do love others. But then it also means you have to love yourself. Right. Right. If you don't love yourself, you cannot love the other. Uh, we become blind uh, or, or consumed by, by self-hatred if we don't love ourselves. And so it's actually a service to others to love ourselves so that we can love them better. But then if you fast forward to that scene that we call the Last Supper before Jesus suffers his crucifixion, he says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another, not as yourself. He changes it. He says, now love one another as I have loved you. And I think at the time that he said it, the apostles must have thought, well, how has he, he loved us? I, we just kind of walked around with him for the last three years. I don't really know what does that mean. But the next day they would see what that means when, when he allowed himself to be sacrificed for them. And so now we've come to see, okay, to love another as Christ has loved me means that I need to be prepared to make a sacrifice of myself for the sake of the other. And that's how we know Jesus loved unconditionally uh, he upheld the dignity of the of the person there's a story that is contained in the gospel of luke where just before jesus dies the the person crucified next to him professes his faith in him that he is the messiah basically and asks for him to have mercy on him because he's a criminal who he says deserves the punishment that he received but Jesus says, well, today you will be with me in paradise. And just, he shows him mercy. Uh, and that, I think, characterizes for us as priests specifically, what does it look like for us to, in a way, that's why we leave everything behind. We don't, right. we, 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 we forsake whatever other comforts we might want to enjoy in the world, whatever other things people would consider normal and just a kind of ordinary way of living so that we can belong entirely to others and put them first and love them and serve them. Wow, yeah, that's such a, a striking insight into uh, 
your faith traditions and kind of the best aspects of your faith traditions. So we're kind of approaching, we still have some time left, but we're approaching uh, the end of our time together. Uh, and in your initial story, you talked a lot about how your Italian heritage kind of informed uh, your priesthood. Uh, and you identified that you kind of have this uh, unique positionality and that you also have this indigenous, this Métis heritage. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about how that background um, informs your priesthood. Mm-hmm. It has, it has, without a doubt, had a tremendous impact even before my priesthood mm-hmm. uh, on my life as a Christian. Because my Kokum, my, my Cree grandmother, was the most faithful person I have ever known. Uh, and she was a residential school survivor. But her Christian faith was not the consequence of having been sent to the residential school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was uh, in the long line. There was three generations in her family of very devout Bible-believing Christians uh, who were indigenous in their world that wasn't a contradiction for them that that was how they came to decide to honor the creator that they would have said they always knew now they understood him through this christian perspective and they sought to love him and serve him in that way and so it was for her and where that really showed itself was in her love of scripture and so i often say that while on my Italian side, I had my nonna teaching me the best of Catholic tradition. On my indigenous side, I had my kokum teaching me from the earliest age. She was the first person to give me a Bible, wow. to love God's word. And not a day went by in her life that she didn't spend the first hour or two of her morning reading scripture and silently meditating. And if I was at the farm with her or she was staying at our house in Medicine with us, didn't change except you were now invited into that with her. Mm. And my, some of my fondest memories as a child are just sitting on her lap as she would read scripture to me and then close the book and, and then just from her heart, talk to God out loud so that I could hear. But she was teaching me how to have that personal relationship with God. Uh, Catholics can sometimes become lost in ritual. We have rituals for everything. And so you can kind of just come and mindlessly do your gestures, sit down, kneel, stand, bow, whatever, make the sign of the cross with some holy water. Okay, go home. You can sort of just step into that and not really be in it. She showed me what it looked like to to really be present in that, to actually have a spiritual life, uh, which was certainly influenced by her her roots as an indigenous woman, who we know in, in, in our indigenous culture, it's just ingrained in us to be spiritual, yeah. uh, to, to want to be in communion with the world outside of our own. And she lived that so powerfully, you could feel it. And so she taught me that. And now as a Catholic priest, especially in light of all that's transpired in the history of the Catholic church, but in our country, this year now in particular, it's been an overwhelming experience for me to sort of feel like I straddle these, what could be considered conflicted, combative worlds. 
how do you be an indigenous man and a Catholic priest? Mm -hmm. But I, I know how I can because I had her who showed me what it looked like to be an indigenous woman who unequivocally loved God as he was made known to her in her Christian faith. And there was no dispute there. And so she has shown me, she's given me a pattern that I now seek to try and live by and follow and honor. Uh, and I can only hope that, that it does honor her. She passed away two years ago. Um, but now I feel maybe closer to her now than ever before. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that with me and with our listeners. I uh, generally... There are, I wish we had more time together because there are so many threads in what you've said that I want to trace down about um, like self-love and what that looks like and what reconciliation looks like and what... Oh, and there was another one as well that I'm blanking on. But you've, you've offered a lot of uh, kind of food for thought, I think. And uh, generally how we conclude this podcast, and maybe we'll just have to have you on again. Maybe that's the... The solution here um, is I invite uh, our guests to offer wisdom to someone who uh, might not be in their shoes exactly, but who are having uh, similar resonances. And I'm and I'm wondering if uh, that is the right question, given how uh, difficult or or how much you have to give to become a priest. Um, so I guess maybe because you work with uh, young adults and because you work uh, in this world where, you know, there are these uh, conflictions between uh, Catholicism and between maybe some of the history mm -hmm. of, of the faith. Uh, and I wonder what, maybe that's the question that I'm, I'm working my way towards and I thank you for your patience in uh, in letting me get here, is what uh, wisdom do you have to offer for someone who is navigating maybe those intersections mm -hmm. where they're struggling with, uh, yeah, how those worlds intersect? Right. Thank you for asking that question. It's You can imagine how much time I spend personally yes. reflecting on that um, and reconciling it for myself parts of the history of my tradition that I can very plainly say I am uh, ashamed of. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I have come to see is that it is impossible for people to go through this life to not look back upon any or every facet of their history with some disappointment or discouragement or shame. But from that I ask, what does staying there do for your future? Mm. A lot of what I described earlier about what I believe and understand it means to be a Catholic priest, I think many people could rightly say, well, we haven't heard about a lot of priests living like that. And I wouldn't deny that. What I would say is, I can't have a future where all I do is look back with disgust or shame on the past, a past that I wasn't even part of, but I can chart a new course that is characterized by an abundance of the love and the sacrifice that may have been missing in the past. Mm. 
we don't forget or rewrite our history. We allow history to shape the future that we want to see instead. Uh, and so for anyone who struggles in any way, whether it's I was raised Catholic and now I hate that I'm Catholic, or I'm just burdened by any facet of my history, to, to that person I say first, as I said earlier, love yourself. Love yourself for who you are. And then look forward and say, how can I contribute towards a future for which I would not be ashamed? Mm -hmm. a, a future characterized uh, by sacrifice, by love, and by making a gift of myself to the world. Wow. That is, I think, the perfect note to end on. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your story. Uh, I'm really grateful to have uh, sat in this space with you and listened and been able to ask my questions. Uh, and thank you to uh, those of us or those of you who are joining us uh, for offering your time and your listening ears as well. Uh, and I have a new thank you uh, to Leland Harris, who uh, composed and recorded our intro and outro music. And a final thank you to the Faith and Spirituality Center, who is uh, offering us uh, this space and this platform to engage in uh, the sharing of this spiritual storytelling. Uh, so yes, thank you to Faith and Spirituality Center, fourth floor, Mac Hall, University of Calgary, and thank you again to uh, Father Cristino. It's been a real pleasure having you here. And thank you, Eden, for being such a thoughtful interviewer. Thank you.